Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. Let's start with a topic that has captured everyone's attention, the proposed FTC rule banning non-compete agreements. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but interest continues to grow in this subject. The latest news is that the FTC has voted to extend the comment period for the proposed rule until April 19th of this year. After the comment period is over, the FTC can issue a final rule, which will go into effect 30 to 60 days after it's published. Of course, as soon as a final rule comes out, expect immediate legal challenges and probably an injunction staying the implementation of the rule until the courts can resolve the legal challenges. Long story short, the rule is probably coming, but it may be a while, and it will certainly be a while before a rule is actually implemented, if one ever is. So stay tuned. While we are on the subject of government agencies gone wild, let's look at the other big story in the labor and employment world, the NLRB's recent decision that common confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions included in severance agreements violate Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. The case was McLaren-McComb, and it considered severance agreements that were offered to nurses. The agreements contained very common provisions. This was the confidentiality provision, quote, The employee acknowledges that the terms of this agreement are confidential and agrees not to disclose them to any third person other than spouse or, as necessary, to professional advisors for the purposes of obtaining legal counsel or tax advice, or unless legally compelled to do so by a court or administrative agency of competent jurisdiction, end quote. And this was the non-disclosure and non-disparagement language. Quote, At all times hereafter, the employee promises and agrees not to disclose information, knowledge, or materials of a confidential, privileged, or proprietary nature of which the employee has or had knowledge of or involvement with by any reason of the employee's employment. At all times hereafter, the employee agrees not to make statements to employer's employees or to the general public which could disparage or harm the image of employer, its parent, and affiliated entities, and their officers, directors, employees, agents, and representatives, end quote. And again, I think both of these provisions, or some slight variation of them, are very common in these types of severance agreements. However, the board concluded that these provisions were overbroad and violated Section 7 of the Act. I'll link the decision in the show notes if you want to read more about the board's reasoning. For employers, the first thing to remember is that this only applies to employees covered by the National Labor Relations Act, basically employees who are in in unions or who could be in unions. So it doesn't apply to most managers, executives, and contractors. So one easy approach to compliance for employers is to remove these kind of provisions from agreements that are being offered to covered employees who are typically non-management employees. I think you could still have language protecting trade secrets if that is an issue. Also, it's still possible to craft language that might be acceptable to the board and provide some protection for non-disparagement, for example, but until the board issues more guidance, it's really a guessing game. Now, I get a lot of questions about these kind of issues, and my opinion is that confidentiality and non-disparagement are overrated in most instances. 
Sure, you should include these kind of provisions for executives and high-level employees, but for lower-level non-managers, I'm just not sure it makes sense, especially in light of this decision. If you feel it's necessary for your business, it certainly makes sense to review and revise your agreements in light of the decision. Alternatively, just take the language out for covered employees. People get so concerned about negative comments online by former employees, but again, I'm not so sure it's a big deal. I feel like most online reviews are pretty useless these days. Look at a review for anything. Restaurants, movies, shoes, cars, whatever. For every review that says it's the best thing ever, there's another one that says it's the worst. It's hard to take any of it very seriously. When I see someone online ripping on their former employer, my reaction is that it might be true, but it's just as likely that the former employee is mad because they were terminated and they're trying to even the score. Unless they're doing something to really damage your business, like leaking the secret formula for Coca-Cola, I'm not sure it's worth investing a lot of time and effort into shutting them down. Now let's look at an age discrimination case out of Texas, Huang versus Micro Semi Corporation. In this case, an engineer sued his former employer for age discrimination after his position was eliminated in a reduction in force. Wang's position was eliminated because the company determined that it only needed two managers in an area where there had been three. To determine which of the three managers was to be eliminated, the company looked at four categories. Job criticality, flexibility, performance, and seniority. It also added three subcategories depth of agile system understanding and agile system engagement and implementation. The decision maker admitted that he had made up these latter categories and they were purely subjective. Ultimately, the court decided in the employee's favor and is allowing the case to go to trial. A big factor in the decision was the fact that Huang got low ratings on the subjective categories, many of which centered on supposed inflexibility, which could be viewed as a stereotype applied to older workers. Another big factor was statistical evidence. The average age of terminated employees in the RIF was 55.9 years old, and the average age of retained employees was 39.1. So here are a couple of takeaways from this case. First, anytime an employer relies on subjective criteria in a RIF, they're open to arguments of discrimination. The safest approach is always objective criteria like date of hire seniority. And if you do feel that it's necessary to use more subjective criteria, you better be able to back it up. Also, courts will consider statistical evidence, and it's something I would have expected the company to look at as well. Bottom line, if you're planning a significant reduction in force, it pays to consult with counsel and look at all the angles from a litigation avoidance perspective. Now let's look at a race discrimination claim from New York, Bramble versus Moody Corporation. In this case, an employee was terminated after she fell for a phishing scam. The employee, an African-American female, had been trained on spotting and reporting phishing and scam emails. She received an email from outside the company purporting to be from an employee wanting to change their payroll and direct deposit information. The employee forwarded the email to a subordinate and directed the subordinate to make the changes. It turned out to be a scam and money was sent to an unauthorized account. After an investigation, the employee was terminated for failing to follow proper procedure by asking for verification from the employee who had supposedly asked for the changes. And she admitted she had made a mistake. She filed a race discrimination claim, but the court found for the employer. 
Now, this was a fairly straightforward case, and the employee lost because she was not able to establish that any similarly situated employee outside the protected class had engaged in similar conduct and had not been terminated for it. There was simply no evidence to support an inference that race had anything to do with the decision. Now, I run across a lot of employers who are so afraid of breaking the law that they won't take any action. The main takeaway here is that employers can still terminate employees without running afoul of the law, provided they apply their policies consistently. It was, it's unfortunate that this employee lost her job over a mistake, but there is nothing unlawful about the employer's decision. Finally, let's take a look at a wage and hour case from Kansas, Lindy v. Envision Healthcare Corporation. This was an unpaid overtime case. The employee worked as a nurse in the emergency room of the employer's hospital on a part-time basis, and her employment was governed by a contract. The employer agreed to pay her $65 an hour for clinical hours worked, and clinical hours included charting. The contract also required her to obtain approval for hours worked in excess of 40 hours per week, but the contract did not state that she would not be paid for overtime worked that was not approved. Company policy stated that employees were required to check their time records and report discrepancies so they could be corrected. Employees were also required to complete patient charting before ending the workday and leaving the hospital. Now, the employee claimed that she worked after the end of every shift and wasn't paid for it. The court noted that to succeed on an FLSA overtime claim, the plaintiff has the burden of proving that she performed work for which she was not properly compensated. To support such a claim, the plaintiff must show she actually worked overtime, that the amount of overtime was shown by justifiable and reasonable inference, and the employer had actual or constructive knowledge of the overtime. Now, in this case, the employer argued that there was no evidence that it was aware the employee was working overtime. The employee argued that she was told that she should not track actual time worked and would be paid by the schedule, and that post-shift work was compensated only in limited circumstances. She also claimed that computer records would have tracked the time she was working and put the employer on notice that she was working past the end of her shift. Now, in finding for the employer, the court noted that there was no evidence from coworkers or supervisors that they saw the employee working late. It was undisputed that the employee was hired on a part-time basis, so even if she was known to work beyond her scheduled shifts, that did not create an inference that she was working more than 40 hours in a given work week. Now, this case to me is an example of an employer having good time reporting policies in place and good facts. One point I would make is that if employers are hit with a wage and hour claim, it makes sense to do a thorough investigation, just as you would for a harassment or discrimination claim, pinning down key facts like the lack of corroboration for the alleged overtime. And this is critical for an employer in determining its defense strategy in these types of cases. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. 
The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.